Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. I want to ask you a question this morning, a couple questions. The first one is, how many of you are enjoying uh, the early summer weather? It's pretty beautiful out there, especially the mornings and the evenings. I'm all about the Tennessee summer nights when it cools off just a little bit. I researched it and found out that technically summer doesn't start until June 21st. I feel like that's not true here. And then it's over on September 22nd. So can I just... You know, this is not our annual business meeting right now, but can I just submit that we at Graceland Church change summer to be May 21st to August 22nd, all with a yay by showing of your hand? So moved. I believe summer is a time to rest. You know, kids get off of school, people take trips. It's also a time, I believe, to go deeper. And I wanted to encourage you uh, to make sure that as you rest this summer, as you travel, uh, don't stop prioritizing your connection with God right? We lean into the Lord and the rest that he gives us. And don't stop prioritizing your connection with the church family. It's one of the reasons we're going to do these summer community groups. And a lot of our teams are going to go into a training season uh, over summer as we build up for the fall. Um, And we have to prep for the fall well, because likely the growth here, Lord willing, will continue. And we have to be ready for expanding and whatever God calls us to do uh, regarding all these teams and our services. And you'll hear more about that at our annual business meeting. Uh, I do want to ask another question, and I want to ask you guys to be honest about this, and we're going to actually raise our hands. How many of you, my hand is up, at some point in your life or your family's life had a piece of exercise equipment in your home that you or someone purchased for a lot of money that went unused for so long that it got covered in dust and just became a place for laundry? Anybody with me? We've all done that, I think. You know, I I was thinking back on my childhood. I remember when my parents got the Nordic track. Anybody remember the Nordic track? We also had the Bowflex. At one point, we had the entire home gym in our garage. We had the indoor cycling bike. In fact, I remember being in sixth grade, and I was the oldest sibling among my siblings. And so I would get home before everyone else, and my parents were still at work. And the rule was, Nathan, you can watch TV if you're cycling. So I had to sit there on the cycle in front of the TV if I wanted screen time and just cycle the whole time. And I remember my little young sixth grade consciousness wrestling with it like, you can't stop. You got to be true to your word if you want to keep watching TV. I looked up some of the machines now. There's the tonal, there's the body flex, there's the mirror. Has anybody seen the mirror yet? This whole big mirror that goes in front of you is this amazing system. There is the force USA G9 all-in-one trainer, USA in the name, G9, I don't know what that means. All you need to do is drop 5K on it, and you can have the exact body that you want. Jess and I like to keep it classic with the old school treadmill. Who's with me? We got one recently. Yesterday morning, I decided to try using it. And we went through and took turns, including including Kensington, one of my daughters. They all wanted to get their shot on the treadmill, including my three-year-old son. And he's like reaching up, holding the sides, you know what I mean, running and like living his best life. And then it was my turn uh, to get on. And I wanted to exercise for real. And the three younger ones stayed and watched me and posed the question, Dad, can you run at the fastest setting? (laughs) So like any good dad... I turned my phone on full blast to the Rocky playlist. (laughs) Eye of the Tiger was first. I started warming up. I put the little clip on, 
And they were amazed that I wasn't holding on. I was like, I don't even hold on. I just stand here and I run. And before you know, I was up at 10 running. It basically felt like I was running as fast as I could. <laughs> and I'm kind of praying, God, let this be a win. Let this not be an injury. Thankfully, I then, you know, you know when you're running that fast, it's like hard to hit the button to slow back down. And, I, and I'm trying to play it cool. All my kids were like right here. I'm imagining my wife watching from the corner. And I'm just like, this, ha- this has to be a victory. And so thankfully, I slowed it back down. It was a victory. And I've used it a couple times now, and it's amazing. I used to run when I was younger quite a bit, and you get this thing called runner's high at the end of a long run, where it feels like you're kind of walking around floating. And with a treadmill, I never knew this till this week, but going 20 minutes on a treadmill will give you an amazing runner's high. You don't have to run for an hour because you're running and not moving anywhere, and your body gets used to it. So when you hop off and just walk around your house, it feels like you're, it feels like you're floating. You don't need drugs, kids. You can just run on a treadmill for 20 minutes and walk around your house floating. It's amazing. I've also realized that I have pain in like little parts of my leg that I kind of forgot about. You know what I mean? Like the middle-aged body starts changing. And what's amazing about that though is working out, as you know, is literally the tearing of your muscles. That's why it hurts and aches a little bit. And then it starts to rebuild. Like our body miraculously, by God's design, actually restores itself. And that's so incredible to me when you really stop and think about all the miracles taking place. It's also happening outside right now. We're on the tail end of spring. All of creation becomes new. We have this God of restoration. It's part of his design. And I want to preach a a sermon today out of the book of John called God's Heart for Restoration. And I think it's really important to keep this heart in mind when we feel like our lives, not just physically, physically, but our, our lives are broken beyond repair, we still serve a God of restoration. Or when we feel like our world is broken beyond repair, we serve a God of restoration. In fact, number one in your notes, I just wanted to set the base. God is a restorer. It's who he is. He restores people. He restores all creation. Scripture says that the final chapter is going to be he restores all things, all things made new, new heavens, new earth. He is a restorer, and this dramatically affects this story that we're gonna look at in John 8, where we see God's heart on display through Jesus, dramatically affects how we engage our own lives and how we engage culture. We have a culture that is changing rapidly around us, and many Christians uh, feel like the complexities are tough to face. How do you parent? How do you grandparent? How do you make decisions? Where do you push? Where do you give? It is challenging. I believe this story helps us. The definition for restoration is the process of returning something to its original owner or condition. And I just believe that this is God's heart based on the whole spirit of the word of God. And the text begins right after the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus was in a very public scenario. We've been looking at it the past few weeks. People are arguing about Jesus. People are accusing him. Some wanna kill him. Some wanna learn from him. And this is where he made that declaration. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and you'll be filled with living water. This amazing moment with Jesus. And that's when we pick up in John 8. And we're gonna read verses one through 11 right now. And then we'll go through it uh, verse by verse. So verse one says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? 
They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Father, we just bring ourselves before you. And we, in our hearts, kneel down at the feet of Jesus to learn. And Spirit of God, we say you are welcome here in my mind, in my heart, in this place, in my family, in our home, in everything we're doing. Spirit of God, you are welcome. Teach us your ways. Reveal to us more of who you are, more of your heart. And give us eyes to see that which maybe we aren't seeing right now. And give us ears to hear that which maybe we aren't hearing very well right now. In Jesus' name, amen. It starts in verse one with Jesus doing what we see him doing over and over again. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So he goes from a very public scenario that's high tension and he retreats for a little while. And all throughout the New Testament, we see him retreating to commune with his father. He's basically retreating to pray. It's something that he does to get refilled up, to get recharged. It's obviously something that he's modeled for us. And I would submit as kind of a side note to this sermon, but because it's here in the text, if Jesus needed to develop the habit of connecting with the Father, so do we. Like if Jesus, God in the flesh, had to make it a priority in his schedule to get away and have alone time with his Father, it's the discipline of solitude. It's different than isolation. It's not like running because you're afraid. It's not running from people. It's the discipline of solitude, being with God hearing his voice alone before you go back out and take on the world again. I was with uh, Governor Bill Lee with some other pastors this week. We got to hear some of his story, and I heard some pieces that I never knew. He's our, our governor here in Tennessee, and he said that when he was 40, he was living his dream, and he had four kids, and he had a flourishing business and a farm, and uh, all of a sudden, his wife, whom he loved, died on a horse riding accident, and so suddenly... He was left without her and he had his four kids. And then he said, subsequently, one of his daughters, and he was public about this, so he, I don't think he would mind me saying this, um, tried to commit suicide with a shotgun to her head and didn't die, uh, but he didn't go into any, any other detail except that it was, of course, horrific to walk through as a family. He eventually remarried. Um, he surprised himself when, and he ended up becoming the governor. And as you know, if you follow politics at all, it is an intense time to be in politics uh, or in any kind of leadership for that matter. And he's come under scrutiny in our state, but also a few times he's come under national scrutiny and got it elevated right to the top of the news cycle. And what he was sharing with us that was so powerful, and if you don't know this, he's a, he is a committed follower of Jesus. He's like a true Christian, Governor Bill Lee. Um, sometimes people name Christ, you know, in politics, but they're not really followers of Jesus, Jesus that walk with them. I don't know him personally, but he really seems to be a follower of Jesus to me. And he was sharing about how every time he has a really tough day in politics or at the office, which is almost every day because it's so uh, volatile out there right now, he's just reminded that the Father has brought him through 
much worse days than that. And he has very clearly developed the habit of getting alone with his heavenly father, our governor has. And I believe he is just following in the footsteps of Jesus. And of course, Governor Bill Lee's not doing it perfect. None of us do it perfect. But it's worth noting this thing that Jesus always does. Don't fool yourself into thinking you don't need that. Because what we tend to do is we get busier and busier and busier, and the first thing to go is like committed time with the Father, right? Maybe stop that little Bible study. Maybe cancel that prayer walk through the woods. Maybe cancel that retreat you were going to go on. Maybe just don't go to church for six weeks in a row. Maybe just forget those commitments you made. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it, it, we can convince ourselves that, that, that this is, all that is secondary, but actually the busier we are, we need to fight for it even more so that we can flourish through it. And then reading on, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts. So he went away. Now he's back publicly. All the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So it sounds great, but as we see in this story, even though there's a crowd gathered around Jesus, it's not a crowd that all loves him and has his best interest in mind. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. So these are the supposed spiritual leaders of the day (coughs) tracking down a woman caught in sin forcing her into a moment of public shame, all because of what they were trying to accuse Jesus of. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act. Jesus, in the law of Moses, right here, we're commanded to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they're trying to trap him so that they can neutralize this threat. You know, kind of modern culture would call it, they wanna cancel him for good. Like, they don't ever want him coming back. And I think it's important to really sit with the tragedy of what's happening here. Jesus had just made the declaration, hey, anyone who's thirsty can come to me and drink. This this good news, this living water is not for the elites. It's not for the self-righteous, it's for those who are thirsty. He made this incredible open invitation. And right after that, we see the spiritual leaders of the day literally doing the exact opposite of what he is trying to teach them to do. And it leads to this principle, number three, it is possible to get so consumed with our agenda that we lose God's heart for restoration. That's what's happening here. Just by way of definition, an agenda is a plan of things to be done or problems to be solved. And agenda is not a bad word. It is inherently not good or bad. And we all have agendas every day. Our schedule is an agenda. We have agendas for meetings. We have agendas, thank you. Yeah, you guys might be able to tell my voice is still. Oh, we over. (laughs) Don't mind me as I just chug this water that's. I opened it. That is, that, maybe that's a prophetic moment about Graceland. We, we so overflow with the spirit of God and the living water that even when you open a brand new water bottle, it just falls all over you. <clears throat> I lost my voice completely two weeks ago after preaching. I couldn't talk for four days. Thankfully, Heather and the panel did so wonderfully uh, last week, but it's still, still a little weak, so thank you, Stephen. Um, an agenda is not inherently good or bad. <clears throat> But it's important to pay attention to what our agenda 
is causing us to potentially miss. In this case, the Pharisees and teachers of the law had a very bad agenda, which was, we are fighting this Jesus. We don't believe he's from God. He's threatening us, and we need to end him. And their agenda was so overshadowing all of their thought process that it made them miss God's heart of restoration for a woman that was caught in sin. We're not to gloss over her sin, but they are publicly shaming her for the sake of their agenda. And what we see in this story is that God ends up having a very, very different heart about what's going on in this scenario. And I believe he has a very, very different heart about a lot of things happening in our modern culture as well that we can learn from this. One of the things that my dad has always taught me is that you can either love someone and give them room to grow or you want something from them, one or the other. That's it. And if you love someone, it means you actually care about them or you are trying to use them for something that you want. In this case, it's quite clear that the spiritual leaders of the day do not love this woman. They don't have seemingly a care in the world for her in her state of brokenness. And they're not giving her space to grow. In fact, they are using her for their own agenda and blinded to God's heart. Now, this can happen even with really good godly agendas. I said last week about how I believe Christians need to be unashamedly pro-life. We believe there's just no wiggle room in scripture for that. We believe an unborn baby is a baby made in the image of God, period, no questions asked. It is possible though to take that godly agenda, add some very fleshly rage to it and miss God's heart of restoration for the young woman or young man who's wrestling with having an abortion and you miss what God actually wants to do in them. You tracking with me? So even a really good agenda an agenda that's from God when held in an ungodly way can make you miss God's heart. And I would submit there's a good amount of that happening in our, in our culture, in our even Christian culture, in our country right now because people are getting so heated. I listened to a teaching recently that said, we are all getting to the point where we don't know how to manage the fight or flight instinct in us um, and that there's this instinctual thing that when you're under the barrage of, of bad news for so long and, and culture slipping away in the wrong direction for so long, you, you slip into this only one posture and that is fight. That's my one posture. Almost like happening subconsciously, the article was saying. I thought it was interesting when thinking about this. This applies to any of the, the challenging topics of the day. Here at Graceland Church, we believe in scripture, so we believe in a biblical gender ethic. We believe that God creates men and women, and you guys are aware that our culture is completely rewriting that to something called gender fluidity, where, where gender is just a construct that, that is made up by man. I don't believe that is true at all, and I don't believe it will lead to the flourishing life God has for people. I believe it leads to a lot of confusion and pain. I've been around that thinking my whole but even before my adult life, because of the art schools I've been a part of. So when I was in art school, even as a freshman in high school, that was the thinking already. That was the culture I lived in there. Now it's become normal in our culture. Well, we as Christians, we hold to the truth. We don't move the line, but we can't let, let ourselves miss the LGBTQ or however someone identifies person right in front of us and what God's heart is for them. Because we might have an agenda that is only concerned about perhaps laws that are being made or what our kids are going to be raised in. And we end up becoming potentially like those that are on the wrong side of this story. Even a busy day can make us miss God's heart for people. You get so 
I, I don't say, I'm not trying to say you, we get so consumed with our busyness that we might completely miss the people that God brings into our day for us to minister to. People that he wants us to be kind to. People that he wants us to actually slow down ourselves and spend some time with. You tracking with me on this? Our agenda can make us miss God's heart for restoration. When you study the life of Jesus, almost all of these significant stories were interruptions to Jesus' day. They were interruptions to what he and the disciples were doing. And that's where we get all these incredible stories that we still teach today. And so in this very tense moment, we see Jesus do something that is shocking. He just bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. It's almost like a childlike thing. It's so, it's so countercultural. He seems to be completely at peace and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in an emotionally charged moment. So he's starting to change the narrative of what is happening. Uh, yesterday, my wife had our three-year-old at the store. And this, I don't think this has ever happened with Clay. That's his name. Um, it's happened with some of our girls when they were younger and they had pretty strong wills and would throw temper tantrums. I was a temper tantrum baby. Like I had more than one time where my parents left me in a mall crying and like pretended like they just left me there because I wouldn't listen. I'm bearing some of that fruit with my own children. Anybody with me? <laughs> Any other parents? Any other of you were those kind of babies? Come on, raise your hand if you were that kind of three-year-old. One, wow. Two, uh, wow. Okay, all, what, what I like to say is because sin abounded in me, even at three years old, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So all of you perfect kids have not tasted the grace that I have tasted as an extra sinful three-year-old. <laughs> well, Clay, for whatever reason, freaked out on my wife yesterday. Um, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. But he started throwing a, a, like a temper tantrum. I don't know if he's ever done that. And there was um, an older mom uh, that came up to my wife and started berating my wife publicly in the store. She told me about this after. She, she started yelling at Jessica and publicly shamed my wife about what Clay is doing. And when Jess told me what she said and what happened, it didn't sound like someone that was just kind of frustrated in the moment and wanted to speak into it, what this woman was doing. It sounded like someone that had a chip on their shoulder about what they think is happening in culture and how parents are all dropping the ball. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like every generation of grandparents criticizes the next generation of parents. We don't do that here. No one does that here. No one at Graceland Church. I don't mean to like dig a hole here, but I use it by way of example. I don't think someone would blow up on my wife like that publicly if they weren't carrying some kind of their own agenda a little bit. And their agenda was causing them to miss the heart of compassion for a tough moment for my wife. You know, what should have happened there is she comes over to my wife and be like, oh man, it looks like you're in a tough moment. Do you need some help? <laughs> right? Like she already knew things weren't going well with Clay. And thankfully, a different, uh, since it was public, a different, a few different people came over afterwards to console Jessica and she was totally fine. And she gave me permission to share that story. Uh, but Jesus, it's, it's amazing. Those moments like that are emotionally charged. You know how you start feeling when something like that is happening? Even observing Moments like that are emotionally charged. Remember when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? Yeah. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that just happened. And I remember when that all went like so viral online, I saw the video. And then when I watched the longer video where he then yells at Chris Rock and he curses at him, I could feel the emotionally chargedness of the room, just like watching on my phone the next morning. Like those kinds of environments are elevating in a negative way. 
And I use that to illustrate this environment is like that probably times 50, right? This is an insane moment happening here. And Jesus, when put on the spot, starts to just write in the sand. He starts just doodling in the sand. And then they keep questioning him in verse 7, and he straightens up and says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. I feel like it's the ultimate mic drop moment. I mean, the wisdom of heaven comes through Jesus. He's basically like, yeah, we can stone her. If you guys want to, we can stone her. But, but whoever is going to throw the first stone needs to have lived a perfect, sinless life with no brokenness, living into the complete holiness and godliness that you've been called to. Go ahead and throw your stone. Then after that, he again stoops down and writes on the ground. So Jesus is like doing major boss moves here, if you know what I mean. Like he's just like owning the moment. He drops the mic and just starts writing in the sand again. And then something incredible happens. This emotionally charged moment of anger, fear, accusation, and shame slowly starts turning into a holy moment a moment of repentance, a moment of the presence of God. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So this public scene becomes an intimate moment between Jesus and this woman caught in sin. And he straightens up and asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And Jesus doesn't ask her that because he doesn't know. He asks her because he wants her to know. He says, where are they? Have they condemned you? And the word condemnation means to express complete disapproval and sentenced to punishment. So he's basically saying, has no one expressed disapproval and sentenced you to punishment? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared. You see, Jesus in that moment is aware of the reason he is walking on the earth, which is to be the sacrifice for our sins. I was talking to Daniel, our keyboard player, after first service, and he was pointing out how Jesus was the only one standing there who did have a sinless life. He was the only one with the authority to cast a stone. He could have done it if he wanted to. So the one with the authority and with the power and with the holiness has chosen to say, no, I won't cast a stone. In fact, he knows what he's actually doing is he is saying, woman, move out of the way. I'm gonna stand there and take the stones for you. That's what he's actually doing. He knows that's why he has broken into human history. I'm gonna take your place. I'm gonna silence all your accusers and you are not condemned anymore. It is absolutely remarkable what is happening here. And I love articulating it like this, number four. Jesus silences our accusers and frees us from condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you remember the definition of condemnation, it's saying that in Christ, there is no expression of disapproval or sentencing to punishment. How does that sound? How, how would you like to receive zero sentencing to punishment? And not only no expression of disapproval, but only the expression of approval and blessing. In Christ, the Father says of you, this is my daughter, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. That's what he says of us. And he silences all of our accusers. Now, to be clear, if you're not in Christ, there is condemnation. That's a real thing there. I think of it as self-condemnation because 
Someone has to choose to not be in Christ. The invitation is there. The good news is you can put your faith in Jesus right now. You can renew your faith in Jesus right now. It's about confessing him as Savior and Lord. It's by faith. It's through grace. And all of a sudden, we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and it is a gift of salvation. And then Jesus ends it with just him and the woman there, go now and leave your life of sin. It's a command. Go and leave your life of sin. So he, he calls her to receive salvation for free and to actually change how she is living. He's saying, hey, your, your accusers are all gone. It's just you and me. He's saying, I don't condemn you at all. But he's saying, don't commit adultery anymore. He's saying, learn what it is to be faithful. And this is true of us, number five. Jesus pays the total price for our restoration and calls us to leave our life of sin. This is part of the good news. The good news is, yes, free salvation in the Lord, but then he shows us how to live. He shows us how to live a life that works and flourishes. I don't know about you, but I don't wanna just keep receiving the mercy of God for all of my crazy sin that's messing up my life. I want my life to change and actually follow the way everlasting and flourish and bear the fruit of faithfulness. Who's with me? Like we long for holy lives. We long to leave our life of sin. And Jesus calls us to that and fills us with the Holy Spirit and empowers us to do it. And the perfect demonstration was in this story of how Jesus approached this woman caught in sin. And it's articulated really well in Ephesians 4, and it helps us think through how to treat ourselves and how to engage our culture. It says in verse 11, Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the people so the body of Christ can be built up so that we can reach unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, become mature, attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, and then pay attention here. Then... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Pause there. That's a good definition of our culture. If we're not careful, we will get tossed around by everything our culture is doing and every new teaching, every new idea, every redefinition of truth, and we're not called to live that way. So saying we should be growing past that and, and then Here's what we do instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So what we're commanded to do there is exactly what Jesus demonstrated with the woman caught in adultery. It changes how we engage people. It changes how we engage culture. It changes how we engage ourselves. We offer the love of the Savior and the truth of the Lord. And what I want to encourage us to do is let's follow Jesus by remembering God's heart for restoration and being people of truth and love. I don't think it's a stretch to say that in some ways we, the church, on a large scale, have overemphasized truth and underemphasized actual love. So when I grew up in these art schools, I was around um, people in the gay community. I can tell you this, and probably lots of you have a family member who's in that lifestyle or a friend. Some of you might be in that lifestyle yourself. And I can tell you this. One thing for sure is that that community has heard really loud and clear, we think you're wrong based on truth. And that's the correct thing. 
I think it is wrong. I, I don't think their life is going to flourish in the way God intended. I believe God made us male and female and calls us to monogamous marriage between man and woman. And that's almost a hate crime right now in our culture to say it, but it's true. The gay community has gotten that message from us every day. But you know what hardly any of them have gotten is that we actually love them. Like actually love them. Not kind of just say we love you, but we love you. And we demonstrate it with how we treat you, how we live with you, how we walk alongside you. I'm committed to us being a church where people that are in any of those lifestyles can come and seek God and find safe welcome. I pray at the same time, it's a place where people can find transformation and the power of God, right? It's not up to me or us to make that happen. It's our job to say, anyone who is thirsty, come, <laughs> right? So anytime we as Christians have a stone in our hand, we're the one who's wrong, anytime. I believe no matter what scenario, whoever might be a specific person that you would like to cast the stone at or whoever might be a segment of culture that you would cast the stone at, put it in this scenario. I believe with all my heart, based on the entirety of scripture, that Jesus would look directly at you and rebuke you just like he rebuked the Pharisees. And he would say, hey, you can cast the first stone if you've never sinned. And if you have any kind of honesty, you would eventually put down that stone and you would eventually walk away. And that person would have a chance to respond to who Jesus is. You guys tracking with me on this? I believe this is how God has called us to engage culture. And I wanna be clear, it does not mean that we move the line on areas of truth and scripture. We must not be tossed around like the waves by whatever happens to be happening. As the worship team comes up, I'm gonna ask you a couple questions and how we respond. If you could close your eyes with me, bow your hearts with me. Lord, we believe it's a holy moment when we respond to your word. We believe, Spirit of God, that you speak through your word and then you speak specifically to us based on what's in your word and what we need. So we just say, God, speak to me today. I don't know where you're at, my brother, my sister. You might need the accusers in your life to be silenced. You might need to be freed from a life of condemnation. You just are living under the sentence of punishment all the time, which Jesus is not putting you under. It might be your own self-talk that's accusing you. It might be people in your life. I pray that you'll be free of it today. You also might be in a place where you need to actually leave your life of sin. There might be really specific things coming up in your heart and mind right now that the Lord puts his finger on and says, I have called you to walk away from this. And you might need to say, yes, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for re-engaging whatever that was. Give me the power of your spirit and the, and the vision to walk away from that with all my heart. You also might be in a place today where you find yourself with rocks in your hand. And I can understand how, how we get there. We're concerned for our kids and our grandkids. And we sometimes want to throw rocks at the people making these new laws or shaping the world that they're going to grow up in. And we're concerned how it's going to hurt them. So we want to throw rocks. Maybe you have genuine anger and rage about some, someone in your life who has hurt you. 
Maybe there's someone who publicly shamed you in a store like what happened to my wife. Maybe there's something way more serious than that. I believe for you to be free and walk in the life that God has called you to, you have to drop the rocks. You know, with your eyes still closed, there's one person in scripture that is called the accuser of the brethren. So the one who accuses the men and women of God night and day, and that is Satan. He is the accuser. In fact, he tries to accuse you and me before God the Father every day because he hates us, he hates God. God loves us, so he hates us. He'll lie about us. He'll bring up things from our past that are true that we've been forgiven of. He'll try to hang them over your head forever. He is the accuser. That's his language. There's another one in scripture, Jesus, the son of the living God, the Messiah. He is the intercessor. He sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession. That means praying for you, praying for me, praying for every person that is walking this planet right now, including the one that you might have a stone raised towards. And the simple question is this, will you be a person uh, that is more like the accuser or more like the intercessor? So Lord, may we be a church full of those that have your heart for restoration, full of intercessors, full of those that pray, full of those that offer hope, also full of those that share truth. God, teach us how to do this. Give us opportunities every day to lean into this truth, we pray. Just one last thought before I pray this benediction over us. I feel like what we're doing every time we gather as the church is we're reminding ourselves that we're just like the woman caught in adultery, right? We sin, we fall short. People wanna destroy us with accusations. We should be stoned, we deserve the punishment where we fall short. Jesus comes and interrupts the scene silences our accusers, does not condemn us, offers us new life, and commands us to go and sin no more, and we're rejoicing about it for the rest of our life. That's what we're doing. That's what the church is. And that's why it's so important that we don't hinder anyone else from having that same experience. You know, part of the idea here, I believe, is the letting go of categories as things that overly divide us. Meaning, I think the accuser of the brethren uses categories strategically. And once you realize, oh, let's just use adultery for an example. So-and-so committed adultery. And now potentially for the rest of their life in your mind, they're in a different category. They're an adulterer. They actually did that. I may have thought about it. They actually did it. And now there's a category there. It happens with theological differences. I've sensed it in myself. I have friends that are a part of different uh, denominations and tribes of the church that are still completely orthodox in the faith, but have little differences that we both care about. And if I'm not careful, I'm like, oh, now they're in a different category. And you notice how that affects your relationships with people when you put them in a category? I had to fight against that. I, when I finally realized I was doing it with one of my childhood friends, he's a pastor in a different denomination. He's not in a different category than me. We're sons of the living God. We're those that are forgiven covered by grace. There is nothing that has to hinder our relationship, right? The enemy uses the idea of these categories. And when you add what's happening in culture and the political spectrum to that, it's like overload. Once you find out someone leans left, oh my goodness, they are in a big different category. 
Once you find someone else, once you find out someone was like pro-January 6th, they're in a different category. Once you find out, you know, whatever, you use the example. Even just saying the, the things out loud gives us an emotional reaction sometimes. If you find out someone is, is, doesn't want Roe v. Wade to be overturned and they're actively fighting for it to remain because that's been their teaching, that's been their, their discipleship, they probably don't know the Lord yet, they sh you should not all of a sudden put them in a different category that you cannot love towards Jesus. The enemy uses the categories. Does this make sense? It's not making less, it's not making light of sin. It's not making light of incredibly important pressing issues. But I just find that God is, I'll speak for myself. I find that God is calling me to live my life as one that he has sent to wherever I am and whoever he puts in front of me, I'm gonna share the good news with and they're in the same category as me, period. We're all the same at the feet of Jesus. A friend of mine who's a pastor in Texas, pastored a flourishing church for years, planted hundreds of churches out of his church, now felt God call him to the Muslim community here in the States. And he's been building relationships with Muslim leaders in Texas and around the world for the past couple years in a, in a strong way to the point that he's catching heat from the church about it because they're like, what are you doing? But he hasn't changed the line on his theological convictions. He's following Jesus. You know what happened? He loves them. He talks about it all the time. He's like, guys, I don't know what you want me to do. God has put a love for these people in my heart, so I'm going to live my life among them. Sound familiar? Sound familiar to Jesus breaking into human history? Upsetting all the religious leaders of the day? I gotta be careful, I'm not gonna preach again. And it's not a chain, it's not going light on sin, it's not going light on truth. Jesus is perfect in love and truth. Another scripture calls it grace and truth. So let me pray this benediction over us uh, and then we'll be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. In Christ's name, amen.